I don't know about you, but I'm not a fan of going to a dentist. And I've had to go more recently than I would have ever liked to go in my entire life, to be honest with you. And so I want you to picture for a moment you're at the dentist's office and you're in the dentist chair and that dentist gets the drill out and he begins to drill and it begins to feel a little uncomfortable even despite the numbing. And he says to you, I'm going to have to go a little deeper. And then he says to you after a while for a third time, I'm still going to have to go a little bit deeper. That's what this sermon I think it's going to feel like for a lot of us. I'm going to start out going in to your heart with the word of God. And then I'm going to go a little bit deeper at point number two. And then we're really go, going to go even deeper in point number three. And I'm going to tell you what some of you may want to do. And that is leave the chair or leave the sanctuary or turn off your TV if you're watching it at home. But I'm going to encourage you to sit in the dental chair of God's word and let him do his perfect work. And I think you're going to have some really good results in your own heart at the end of it. So let's trust him for that, shall we? And let's get into the word of God together. You're at a church that preaches the word of God, teaches the word of God. The word of God is our authority. We gladly yield to it. We try and we seek to preach it and teach it and live it rightly. So I want you to stay in Acts chapter 17, and I'm going to make a statement, and it goes like this. Knowing God is everything. Knowing God is everything. I hope that just reverberates in your mind all of this upcoming week. Knowing God is everything. And he wants to be known by his people. In fact, Paul, or Peter, said in 2 Peter 3.18, we are to grow in the grace and knowledge. You ever caught that before? We are to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be the glory, both now and to the day of eternity. So to know Jesus is to know God. And to know God is to know his Son. And today in this message, we're going to know, or we're going to learn, and we're going to see God's self-sufficiency. And by that, what we mean is this. God possesses an infinite degree of all of his attributes in and of himself, being complete in who he is. I'll say it again. God possesses an infinite degree of all of his attributes in and of himself, being complete in who he is. Now that sounded theologically technical, right? My job is to try to make that come alive for all of us so that we can understand it and be changed by it. So we open up, if you haven't yet, to Acts chapter 17. And if you get to verse 16, which Pastor Matthew uh, began in his reading of God's word, we're going to find that Paul is in a city called Athens. And he's, tour he's taking a tour I mean, he's just walking around, kind of like the marketplace. And he's looking at all of these idols. He's looking at all of these religious icons. And there's temples in Athens. It was famous, by the way, Athens was, for its association with philosophers that you've heard of. Socrates, Plato, Aristotle, they all taught. A lot of them were from Athens. 
In fact, one New Testament scholar said this. Listen to this while I read it to you. This is what Athens was like. Just pretend you were there. Here's what you would have noticed. There were more statues of the gods in Athens than in all the rest of Greece put together. And it was easier to meet a god than another person. So you would not find anywhere in the ancient world, and I mean nowhere in the ancient world, would you find more or rather the, a better epicenter for all of the gods that the world would offer. They're all there. They're all in one place. It was so full of false gods. Look at verse 17 that Paul's spirit, verse 16, was provoked within him. Within him. That Greek word there for provoked means paroxysms. He was having seizures in the sense that he was furious, emotional upheavals within himself. So what did he do? What did Paul do? By the way, what should you do? What should I do when you see false worship all around you? Well, here's what Paul did. He took action, verse 17. He reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. So you've got all of these scholars, all of these philosophers. They invite Paul to come to the Areopagus. That's a 317 foot high bald mountain basically. Just a bunch of rocks. 370 feet high. It's just a big hill. And they would hold court there. They would actually invite you up. I don't know why. I think I know a little bit maybe of why. But all the way from the beginning of human history. People think the higher you go... The, the loftier you're going to be to meet God. I don't know why it is exactly, but it's always been like this. You've got all of these cults and all of these hills. And they invite Paul to come up on this big rocky hill and explain his new ideas. He's going to explain what this unknown God altar is all about. And from it, we're going to glean several insights to our self-sufficient God. Now, by the way... You're not in the chair yet. You're about to sit down in the chair. Well, maybe I should just say it this way. The dentist has numbed you. I'm so gracious to you. I'm giving you time to let it take effect. Isn't that kind and benevolent of your pastor? No, I don't really think you think that. You're being numbed right now, right? So here we go. Drill number one. Point number one. God as creator of all is the rightful Lord of all. Now, I want you to see that word all for a moment. Because right now that feels like, oh, no big deal. I mean, this is going to be a breeze of a trip to a sermon. Wait till we unpack that word all. Verse 24. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man. This is what Paul is saying on the Oropagus. In full view of the most magnificent temple, or at least one of the most magnificent temples in all the ancient world. He's teaching, and here's 24, part of his teaching. You see, Athens, the city, thought that they had all the bases covered because they had an idol to every single god that they could think of. And just because they might have missed a god, they put an altar to the unknown god, just in case. And we don't want to offend a deity. That was their mindset. So let's get an altar to one that maybe we're not even aware of, one that we don't even know about, but that's his altar. But God is not like these ancient religious icons. Paul says he made everything. 
Now, so far, this is not that difficult to hear. So let's get the drill started. And let me finish that statement. He made everything and demands worship from everyone. I didn't, a- I didn't say he asks for worship from you and from me and everyone and everything. Even the rocks will cry out if we don't. He demands worship from all. Ownership. He's the creator. He owns it all. Ownership involves rights in our legal system. And it does for God, our creator, as well. Yet the rights of our creator God supersede their greater than any of our so-called rights that we think we have. Now the drill is flying now. You ought to be feeling this digging in. And it's going to hit your root center of pride. As difficult as it is for us to accept, and believe me, if you're being honest right now in this message, if you're being honest, your soul is going to squirm. We cannot legitimately hold up a cosmic bill of rights before God and demand that he give us our civil rights and liberties. You cannot do that with God. There is no way you can. He can do with you what he wants. He can do with me what he wants. He is our supreme authority. There are no challenges to his throne. If God takes us home before we think it is our time or before we think it is our loved one's time, God has the right to do that. If God takes away your health or your finances, or your job, and you meander through a career for five years or ten years. God has the right to do that. He has the right to refuse your most passionate, ardent prayer requests. He has the right to grant the ones he wants. He's not obligated to explain why he gives some prayer requests and why he denies others. No matter how much you demand of God that he explains his reasoning, he's not obligated to. And I'm going to tell you, even Job understood, God almost never explains the why. If you're angry with God, friends, you are most certainly clinging to rights that you do not have. And worship is the glad acceptance of God's rightful rule and the willingness to surrender any of our so-called rights to our Lord as our King. Look at Psalm 24.1. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all its people belong to him. This is all coming out of his self-sufficiency. And our first point is hard enough. But the second one is lethal to our pride and independent spirit. Ready? The drill is ramping up. We're going to go a little deeper. Point number two. Everything that we possess is given to us by God. Now look at verse 25. Paul's going on to the Stoic and to the Epicurean philosophers. He says, he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. Now, if you've got your own Bibles with you, can I ask you to underline life and breath and everything? And can I ask you to underline 
gives. And can I ask you to do one more little thing? Can you circle the word all? And remember what I was taught at Liberty University by a seminary professor. All means all, and that's all that all means. There's no more room outside the word all. There's no little pocket of which is not included in the word all. God gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And the psalmist declares of God, you opened your hand. Now get the imagery, ready? Look at me for a moment. Here's what the imagery is from the psalmist. You open your hand. He doesn't cling. He opens his hands. You satisfy the desire of every living thing. Now listen, if you've ever been satisfied, that was God satisfying you with an open hand. So now bring it back to the self-sufficiency of God. There is nothing more important than that we know God. If we understand that he is self-sufficient, that he, in, he contains all that he needs in and of himself, and he gives all things to everybody from the wellspring that is who he is, that's the self-sufficiency of God, then you can see that an open-handed God can actually ignite can ignite generosity in you. This is the whole point of Deuteronomy 15. If among you one of your brothers should become poor in any of your towns within your land that the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not harden your heart or shut your hand against your poor brother, but you shall open your hand. Don't cling. You shall open your hand to him and lend him sufficient for his need, whatever that need may be. You see, here's the truth, and here's where the drill begins to bite. If that, or rather, all that we give of ourselves, all that we give of ourselves, listen, it's just merely returning to God what he's given to you. If you ever give anything, to anyone, time, talent, and treasure, all you're doing is returning to God what God has given to you. You're not coming up with this on your own. You're not giving anything that's outside of the resourcing that God your Father has given to you. Friends, there's nothing that we have that we are the rightful owner of. Now, this is really difficult. We're American pragmatists. We have an independent spirit, right? You work hard, and you buy things that you want, and it feels like you're, they're yours. It feels like you earned it. But the reality is there's nothing that you possess that you are the rightful and true owner of. And when your eyes open to God's self-sufficiency, that from him come all that we have, then you begin, you begin to understand. And listen, you begin to be okay that you are simply a steward of what you have and not an owner. And it all serves a grand purpose that Paul makes clear. And he makes it clear in Romans 11, verse 36. For everything comes from him. Let me say it again, for everything comes from him and exists by his power and is intended for his glory, all glory to him forever. So anything that you have, anything that I have, we are stewards of it and it's meant to bring glory to God. Let me explain that. You ready? Here's where it gets really practical, very easy. God gave us all things to enjoy with an open hand. 
And he has the right to do what he wants with what he owns. And we can lift him up and we can exalt him for all of his good and perfect rule. God is owed nothing. Or rather, he is owed everything from us. That's the complete opposite. And giving to him is our way of saying, thank you for letting me borrow this. I will trust you for all that I need. Now let me press this in a little bit more. Because this is so important, I'm going to go even a little more deeper with a drill on this point. I'll give you an example. Caleb Van Summeren from our church let me borrow a diagnostic tool a few weeks ago. Which was just returned to him. Now, you ready? He gave me a diagnostic tool. We had a light that coded on our engine, and we needed to see what it was and actually get the light out. Turn it off. Gave him the tool back. Now, listen. Now you know the scenario. Watch this. How odd and how wrong would it have been to have returned Caleb's tool and expect him to be grateful that I gave it back and to shower me with effusive thankfulness? Wouldn't that just be weird? It's his tool. It's not mine. Giving him back to him is just what I'm obligated to do. It's what I owe him. If it is his and he lent it to me, then I should give it back. It belongs to him. Now take that into your praise that you just were giving to God in song. All of our praise, all of our sacrifice, all of our service to our God and to other people, all of our giving, it's just simply and powerfully the glad returning to God what actually belongs to him. It's not even ours. He's the rightful owner of it. All right, well, that still is a little bit unclear, Tim, so make it a little clearer. I will do that. Thank you for asking. Spending a weekend helping someone build a wheelchair ramp is the glad, willing recognition that, listen, your health, your time, your abilities are given to you by God for his glory, and here is a glad return on investment. You give sacrificially to support your church or as cyclists for the upcoming RHM bike tour. That's the ministry that we do in Dungu, Africa. And you are simply keeping your hands open. You're not clinging to it, going possessively. It's my money. I earned it. I did it for my purposes. God, you're going to have to pry my fingers off. No, that's not what the gospel does. The gospel willingly opens your fingers. And you realize God has the right to reach down into his money that he let you borrow and steward and give it over to somebody else's hand for a little while. That's God's prerogative. And when you understand that all blessings come from our self-sufficient God and they are coming to you for his glory, then no longer will your fingers curl around your home and your car or your time or your abilities or your money. They uncurl and you say, God, do what you want. It is yours. And I'm going to make a glad return on that investment. Can you imagine going to your bank to withdraw money from your account and the bank teller insists, you don't need your money and I'm not going to give it to you. Wouldn't that be ludicrous? But yet we do it all the time with God. God goes to make a withdrawal and he says to me, Tim, give some of my money to that person who needs it. 
What am I going to do? Or give some of the time that I've given to you and sit and listen to that person's struggle. Or take your abilities that I gave to you and help that person fix their car that is broken down. Or I want you to open up your home that I have lent to you and I want you to host a growth group. Or I'm going to redirect your career and I know it's your dream, but that injury that came into your sports dream, that's designed so that you can understand I'm redirecting it to a career that's going to be way more purposeful. You see, his self-sufficiency means that God possesses all wisdom in himself, all rights in himself, all might in himself, and he can exercise it any way he chooses. Are you willing to surrender? All right, and I told you I was going to... Listen, I was so kind to you. I told you I was going to drill deeper. I'm not even done, because we haven't gotten to the root yet. Your pride is likely, along with mine, still living and active. we got to kill it. So we're going to go a little deeper. Point number three. God needs nothing from us. But we depend on him for everything. He needs nothing from us. But we depend on him for everything. All right. Verse 24. Paul's teaching these philosophers that God does not live in temples made by man. Nor is he served. By human hands, as though he needed anything. What was point number three? God needs nothing from us, but we depend on him for everything. Now let me just unpack that briefly before we go on in point number three. What that means, God needs nothing from us, is that in the triune Godhead, Father, Son, and Spirit, he is absolutely satisfied and complete. And that may be the most unsettling truth you could ever hear to your independent spirit. God doesn't need a thing from you or me. He wasn't lonely and and decided to create people. He had no hole in his soul that humanity fills. He's not dependent on us at all. He's absolutely complete in himself. Now here's the bad news. Here's bad theology. Here's where you could go, can I say it bluntly, if you're a spiritual idiot. Well, God doesn't need us for anything, so he doesn't really care about us. That's just dumb. That's harsh, isn't it? But it's dumb. It's where a lot of heretics go. He voluntarily loves us. That's because he's self-sufficient. He wants to love us because he's got a bottomless spring of love in and of himself. And it doesn't ebb and flow based on our actions. That's because he's self-sufficient. You and I tend to love when people are easy to love. And it's hard to love. We don't love so much. Why? Because we're dependent on God. He had to pour his love, Romans 5.5, into our hearts so that we could love people the way that he loves us. Listen to Psalm 50, it puts it this way. For every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the hills, and all that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, God says, I would not even tell you. For the world and its fullness are mine. Why would he need us? He is absolutely full within himself. 
He needs nothing from us. And his self-sufficiently tells us that he is owed by everything, everybody. Something that even Job, whom we venerate as the greatest saint in suffering ever, even Job had to learn this lesson in his self-righteous heart. He came to the point where God thunderously asked him, what, who has first given to me that I should repay him? That's God speaking to Job. Because Job was demanding. The Bible says that Job became righteous in his own eyes. He justified himself rather than God. That's where pain will take you. That's where an endless trial will take you. If you don't get a respite from it, you will begin to justify you rather than God. And you will become righteous in your own eyes. And God had to break his heart down. Who has first given to me that I should repay him? Whatever is under the whole heaven is mine, Job. I don't owe you anything. But Job, you owe me everything. And that is worship. That is the understanding of our self-sufficient God who is rightfully owed everything. And when you begin to see that and your pride and my pride and our independent spirit begin to be broken down by the power of the gospel. Listen, you will never praise as well as you will then. You will never worship as well as you will then because now everything goes to God. God is owed everything. And you don't worship to try to get God to give you anything. You don't worship to try to get an emotional high for church. You worship because God's the very center of your affections. But he's actually going to go on. Look at verse 26. His self-sufficiency is going to condemn racism of any kind. As he from his own counsel made from one nation, one man, every nation. Listen, I'm going to tell you something. Look around you. And when you drive home, look at the people on the sidewalks. Every single person came from one. That's why racism is so ridiculously incongruent with a Christian. How can you possibly see somebody that's got black skin or from Asia or from anywhere else in the world and have some value that you're superior to them? You all came from one person. He made from every man, from one man rather, every nation. Look, it goes on, the second part of verse 26. His self-sufficiency kills any sense of any kind of superiority that you might feel because you're an American or because you've got white skin and superiority or even take the converse any guilt that anybody tries to throw on you because you're white or black or Asian or Indian listen this destroys it all look what he says in verse 26 God determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place you grew up in this country because God determined it. You are white or you are black or you are Asian because God determined it. Therefore, nobody ought to make you feel guilty. Therefore, you should never feel superior. You didn't choose any of it. I didn't choose any of it. We are who we are by God's decree. Therefore, God in his self-sufficiency has all wisdom and right to decree it. When and where you were born and to what family was not by chance, but it was God's wise decree to make it so. 
And because he is self-sufficient, he has all knowledge to know what life experiences are going to move you to seek God, verse 27, and perhaps feel your way toward him and find him. All those hard times that you've had in your life, listen, growing up as a kid in a terrible home, living in a neighborhood where pretty poor growing up. I had one person tell me they were so poor they stuffed cotton in their ears so that the roaches couldn't climb in at night when they were sleeping and crawl in there at night when they were sleeping. You know what he does now? He sells dope out of the back of his Mercedes because they told me I'm never going to be poor like that again. Listen, you want to know who decreed that you're going to be raised in that home and who will give you the grace to come out of it with dignity and the ability to glorify God? It is God. He is self-sufficient. He is wise to know all things. He knows what's going to move you to him. He knows what you need to seek him out. In verse 29, his self-sufficiency reminds us that no one made God. And it puts to death in us the need to try to replace him with a more dependable God, what we call an idol. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. You know this, right? I'm preaching to the choir right now. Y'all know that every idol is part of your vain imagination. That's what the Bible calls it. It's part of your vain imagination and mine too. And it's created out of nothing because there's an elusive lie and deceitful promise that it's going to give you what you don't think God will give you. Because you have a low view, if you're an idolater, of God's self-sufficiency. And from him, all of his promises have a yes and amen. If you don't believe that, you're going to run to an idol. And that idol will enslave you and destroy your life. And finally, his self-sufficiency drives us to repentance, knowing that he has the right to judge the entire world. Verse 30, the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Why? Because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and that man's name is Jesus. Now, I'm almost done. The drilling is slowing down. I'm hoping that all of our pride has been exposed, that discomfort as you hear these things, that you owe God everything, you own nothing, that he is complete without you, but yet loves you. But look one more time at verse 25, at God's utter lack of need from us. Verse 25, as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. Now tie in what Paul said. That God is infinitely self-sufficient in Philippians 4. He is able to supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. So Christian, as I'm almost done, let me ask you a question. Are you in a crisis right now? Is there something that you don't have that you feel you desperately need? Do you honestly not believe that God has the ability to supply it? That his self-sufficiency answers your struggling heart? 
your faith that is flickering, all you need to do is remember God is self-sufficient, meaning he has all of his attributes to an infinite level in and of, he, in and of who he is himself. He doesn't need to go to the bank. He doesn't need to go to a farmer to get him a few more cattle. He owns everything. Everything is his. And if you need anything, he can get it to you, but he will do it at the exact right time that his wisdom decrees. This is why missionary Hudson Taylor, one of my heroes of the faith, said, depend on it. God's work done in God's way will never lack God's supply. Do you believe that? Take that to your own job, because that's your mission field. Take that to your own neighborhood. Some, some of us take it back to your own family. Take it back to your own friendship circle and your athletic teams and your hobbyist groups. Those are your mission fields. God's work in those mission fields done in God's way at your place of business, whether you own it or you work at it, that is your mission field. If you do your work God's way, you will never lack God's supply. Because our God possesses to an infinite degree all of his attributes in and of himself. He is complete in who he is. Therefore, he is able to provide all we need at all times. And you can depend on that. Here's what we saw. God, as the creator of all, is the rightful owner of all. And everything that we possess is given to us by God. And God needs nothing from us, but we depend on him for everything. Amen? Now, I'm going to close with this. Because, I mean, what do you do with this sermon? Uh, what are you supposed to do with this sermon? I'll tell you what you should do to every sermon that ever preaches the gospel, ever, preach, ever preaches the truth. And I have to do this too. When God begins to, dis to expose things in our hearts during the preaching of his word you can't just say you know i think i better ruminate on that later you're going to be like james who forgets what you look like when you walk away from the mirror of god's word it is immediate you begin confessing it god i agree i see it i don't want it i'm going to throw it to you i'm going to put it in your merciful hands and the moment you begin confessing it god's grace begins shifting your desires and it begins changing who you are at the heart level. And it's at the heart level that we are to, to guard above all else, for from it flow the issues of life. So right now, if God exposed anything, don't wait. You confess it now and repent from it now. And if none of these apply to you to the best of your ability, you're doing all of this, you owe God everything, your worship is full of dependence on him. Listen, you didn't get there in your own power. You can't. That's evidence that God's been changing you. So what do you do? You praise God and you say, God, I am so thankful that I am not today who I was 10 years ago. Because 10 years ago, my fingers were curled over everything. And I didn't believe you were self-sufficient. I believed I was sufficient. And you have broken that pride and that independence down. And I am here to worship you. You give thanks to God. And you give praise to God. Because that's what God is doing in your heart. Amen. Let's pray. Thank you, Father.
We're going to go back in and sing a couple more songs. And man, they are going to be good songs to sing. I cannot wait. And we are going to close in the doxology. And we're going to see the self-sufficient God even in that song. And Lord, it is going to be powerful. And I pray, Father, that we will leave here with the word of God having done some work in our hearts. Lord, even if it's uncomfortable. Lord, you've been drilling deep into our souls. And you've been getting at these root systems of pride and self-dependence and, and, and just arrogance. And Lord, you've been drilling it out. And that's what we need. Because we can't get in there. We can't drill that stuff out. It's got to be the gospel doing that. That's the good news, Lord, that you do not leave us where we are. You're constantly changing us. So Lord, if any of us, me included, Lord, if any of us had our hearts exposed in that message father help us to confess it out help us to throw it to you and ask for your mercy lord and change our desires change who we are and lord for any of us that say you know what i don't struggle with that anymore like i used to then god let us praise you because that's the evidence that we are your children that's the evidence that you are doing your perfect work we love you and Lord, as we sing these last couple songs to you, let us be the people of God that sing to our self-sufficient creator who owns all things and is owed all by everybody. May we return it to you in praise. And in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.